Former British Prime Minister Boris Johnson says he won't be a candidate for his old job as the political jockeying to replace Liz Truss intensifies. It's Monday, October 24th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shinoy. Coming up, some China experts are worried about the inner circle of Communist Party leader Xi Jinping, who will help him run the country for the next five years. This could be potentially a dangerous situation because if Xi Jinping were to make a mistake, then nobody dares to correct him. Also this hour, support for former President Donald Trump is making things difficult for Republicans running for office in New England. When you go into a Republican primary today, that electorate is so staunchly Trump. And in New England, the electorate is somewhere else entirely. And what's behind a wave of early retirements? Rain today in the 60s. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is condemning claims by Russia that Kyiv is preparing to use a so-called dirty bomb in its own territory and then tried to blame it on Moscow. Speaking through a BBC interpreter, Zelensky said there is only one man who could use nuclear weapons in that part of Europe, and that man is Russian President Vladimir Putin. It was Russia who blackmailed us with the radiation disaster at the Zaporizhia nuclear plant. It was Russian troops who mined the hydroelectric dam at Kakovka and are blackmailing us with threats of detonation. It's been Russia using phosphorus munitions, banned anti-personnel mines, and the entire range of weapons against civilian infrastructure. The U.S. National Security Council is calling the allegations transparently false. Jury selection starts today in the trial of two former Minneapolis police officers charged in the killing of George Floyd. J. Alexander King and Tu Tao are charged with aiding and abetting murder and manslaughter. Minnesota Public Radio's Regina Medina has more. Both men have pleaded not guilty and have rejected plea deals from prosecutors. In February, Tao and King were found guilty of violating Floyd's civil rights. They are serving their sentences, but are seeking to overturn their federal convictions. The men were with Derek Chauvin when he kneeled on Floyd's neck for more than nine minutes. Tao kept back onlookers while King pressed down on Floyd's back. Opening statements are set to begin November 7th. For NPR News, I'm Regina Medina in St. Paul. Tensions between North and South Korea are escalating with the two sides exchanging warning shots and claiming the other side violated their maritime border. NPR's Anthony Kuhn reports the North and South are conducting back-and-forth missile launches and military drills. South Korea's military says a North Korean merchant ship crossed the maritime border known as the Northern Limit Line in the Yellow Sea west of the peninsula. The South says it sent warning messages and fired 20 warning shots, after which the ship retreated. North Korea then said it fired 10 rocket artillery shells as a warning to a South Korean Navy ship which crossed the border in pursuit of the merchant vessel. The United Nations Command drew the Northern Limit Line in 1953 at the end of the Korean War, but North Korea doesn't recognize the border. Deadly naval clashes have broken out along the maritime border as recently as 2010. Anthony Kuhn, NPR News, Seoul. Stocks across Asia traded mixed today. You're listening to NPR News in Washington. 
Former UK Treasury Chief Rishi Sunak is a strong favorite to become Britain's next prime minister. He emerged as the frontrunner after former leader Boris Johnson dropped out of the contest on Sunday. The Conservative governing party is choosing a replacement for Liz Truss, who resigned last week. Communities in Wyoming are on high alert after two grizzly bear attacks in the past week. The Mountain West News Bureau's Milwaukee reports both victims survived. One man was attacked south of Grand Teton National Park Friday while on a hunting trip, sustaining injuries to his leg. The incident follows another mauling when four college wrestlers were on an antler hunt. One of the students, Kendall Cummings, recounted the harrowing scene to ABC's Good Morning America. It knocked me onto the ground and then with its head pushed me on the ground all the way up against the trees and then kind of pinned me up there and it was uh, attacking me for a second. Cummings ended up with about 60 staples in his head. Wildlife officials say there's often an uptick in conflicts in the fall as the animals prepare for hibernation. They suggest remaining alert, traveling in groups, and making noise while in bear country. For NPR News, I'm Will Walkie in Laramie, Wyoming. Jury selection begins in New York City today in the case against former President Donald Trump's family business. The Trump Organization is accused of helping some top executives avoid income taxes on the compensation they got in addition to their salaries. If convicted, the organization could be fined more than $1 million. This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Scores on a national exam of math and reading have plummeted since 2019, both in Massachusetts and nationwide. As WPUR's Max Larkin reports, the top federal education official says it's evidence of the pandemic's toll. Massachusetts has long touted its best-in-the-nation performance on the National Assessment of Educational Progress. But in 2022, average scores in this state, like many others, fell by an unprecedented amount in just two years. U.S. Secretary of Education Miguel Cardona calls the results unacceptable. If looking at these outcomes doesn't make us want to double down on system-wide academic recovery, and use federal funds to provide more opportunities for students. If this doesn't have you fired up to raise the bar in education, you're in the wrong profession. Federal education officials point to the latest scores on Massachusetts' own standardized tests as some evidence of academic recovery. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Max Larkin. A team of investigators is looking into a train derailment in Framingham. Six cars and one locomotive derailed yesterday morning. Framingham police say they're waiting on equipment to get the trains back in service. But Route 135 is now back open. A team from UMass Amherst will get $1.2 million in federal funding to look at how solar facilities can be more friendly to wildlife. WBUR's Amy Moon reports the grant is part of a new effort from the Department of Energy to better understand the environmental impact of renewable energy technology. Researchers are seeing a high density of birds making their homes on solar facilities in Massachusetts. With the grant funding, the UMass team will monitor the health and behavior of birds and insects in the area using machine learning and bioacoustic technology. Professor Timothy Rendier says the goal is to create a decision support tool to guide future large-scale solar siting here and in other regions across the country. So we are hoping that by understanding the avian as well as the bee behavior, we wanted to develop more efficient decision support tools 
The project will span four years in partnerships with solar industry experts, the U.S. Forest Service, and Argonne National Laboratory. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amy Moon. The Boston-based foundation named for Travis Roy will make one final big donation before closing permanently. Roy was a Boston University hockey player who was paralyzed by an injury in his first game in 1995. He died two years ago. The Travis Roy Foundation says it'll give a combined $4 million to the Spalding Rehabilitation Center in Boston and the Shepherd Center in Atlanta. It's 7.08. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Trust, a private bank offering a full suite of custom financial solutions tailored to its clients. Their team provides private banking, wealth management, and commercial and innovation banking designed to power any ambition. You can visit their offices or connect online at cambridgetrust.com slash way to wealth. The Patriots will be back in action tonight as they host the Chicago Bears. Meanwhile, the Celtics will be in Chicago tonight to play the Bulls. Rain and even a chance for a thunderstorm today. High today in the lower 60s. Another thunderstorm possible overnight. Low in the 50s. Cloudy with a slight chance of rain tomorrow in the 60s. Right now it's 54 degrees in Boston at 709. WBUR supporters include Focus Features with Armageddon Time. Starring Anne Hathaway, Jeremy Strong and Anthony Hopkins. One family's pursuit of the American dream from writer-director James Gray in select theaters Friday. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez. And I'm Leila Fadel. Former British Prime Minister Boris Johnson says he will not run for the office again. Johnson's surprise announcement leaves Rishi Sunak, the former chancellor, the heavy favorite to become the country's next prime minister and its first person of color to hold the office. For the latest, we turn to NPR's London correspondent, Frank Langfitt. Good morning, Frank. Hey, good morning, Leila. Okay, so Johnson was expected to run. His ally said he was running, and some even said he was the person with the legitimacy to fill the job despite the cloud of scandal that he left under. So why did Johnson announce he's not running? Well, there's some speculation about that today. He Johnson's supporters, and he said he had over 100 lawmakers in his own party supporting him, which would have put him on the ballot. But there's, you know, he never provided proof for that. There's some doubt among his party members about that. And so it's quite possible that, in fact, he didn't, he wasn't going to make it. And that's why he pulled out. The other thing, though, Layla, is that his own lawmakers did not want him, hmm. the people that he works in parliament with. He, you know, you remember he pushed Brexit through. He was a champion right. for Brexiteers. Even Brexiteer parliamentarians wanted Sunak. And William Hague, he's a former chairman of the party. He said that if Boris Johnson were to take over the party again, it could go into a death spiral. So there was a big effort to get him in his own party not to do this. Okay, so let's talk about the man that the prime minister might be. Let's talk about Rishi Sunak. What is his track record and what does he bring to the job? Well, I mean, if you look at him on paper, he's the obvious person for this job. He was mm-hmm. the former chancellor, long financial background, Stanford MBA, Goldman Sachs. He planned the budget in the past. He's a fiscal conservative. He admitted that there was a need to raise taxes because of the financial problems in this country. And what's interesting, Layla, is the conservative membership of the party. They rejected him last August in favor of Liz Trust, who was in favor of unfunded tax cuts and trickle-down economics. Mm-hmm. And what became very clear in the last month is Rishi Sunak was right and Liz Truss was wrong. Mm. If he becomes prime minister, he would be the first person of color to be prime minister in the UK. That sounds pretty significant. It is significant. He'd also be the first non-Christian as well. I think there's no doubt this would be a major milestone in British politics. But Layla, what's interesting to me is if you look at the coverage today, there's very little mention of this at all in the mm. British press. 
And I think the reason for that is that the Conservative Party has had people of color in key positions for years. The last four chancellors, this is the second most important job in the government. They're all people of color. Mm. And close to half of the candidates who ran for prime minister last time, they were all minorities, ethnic minorities. And one expert I was talking to on race and identity, he said, you know, diversity is sort of the new normal in British politics. And, you know, no one's suggesting that the UK is a post-racial society right. at all. Right. There was a talk radio exchange just a couple of days ago where someone said, oh, Rishi Sunak isn't even British, which is absurd. He was mm. born here. He's extremely British. But polling suggests that that's increasingly a fringe view here. NPR's London correspondent, Frank Langfitt. Thanks as always. Good to talk, Layla. While a new prime minister in the U.K. could ease political instability, economic upheaval will be harder to calm. Outgoing Prime Minister Liz Truss's financial policy spooked the markets and persistent inflation is hurting household budgets. For insight into what's next, we're joined now by Adam Posen, president of the Pearson Institute for International Economics. Good morning, Adam. Thanks for being on the program. Good morning, Layla. Thank you. Okay, so what does the next prime minister have to do to try to protect Britain from a deep recession? There's not much they can do right now to protect them from a deep recession, but you can do things to protect households from the worst of it, and mm -hmm. you can do things to protect the pound and the longer-term course of the British economy. What Truss and the previous Chancellor Corting got so wrong is that it matters what you spend money on, and it matters how you determine <laughs> the amount spent, mm -hmm. and they violated norms on both of those. If the new prime minister and the current new chancellor, Mr. Hunt, come in and say, here's a path where we are going to spend on protecting low-income households but not spend willy-nilly, here's a path where we are going to raise some taxes, things should stabilize. So is Britain's former finance minister, Rishi Sunak, the right pick to help calm some of this economic turbulence in the UK? I think it's less about personalities than right. about behavior. He's clearly committed to the institutions, which is they have something called the Office of Budget Responsibility, which is analogous to the U.S. Congressional Budget Office. Liz Truss tried to end run that. He's going to have them review the package. He's committed to the independence of the Bank of England, with their Federal Reserve, and letting them raise rates if they see it necessary. He's committed to actually saying how they're going to supposedly pay for things. Finance Minister just as in the U.S., never fully pay for things, but some motion of paying for it and having to cost it out. So it's about how he respects the institutions as well as just showing some limitation. So more respect for the expertise around this. How much of this economic turmoil was about Truss's economic policies and how much of it is really the legacy of Brexit? I mean, the U.K. had one of the strongest economies in Europe before leaving the European Union. Yeah, I I think Brexit was a major factor in two ways, Leah. First is that Brexit divided the society, divided the politics, and yeah. let extremists in the British Conservative Party essentially run the show. And that's part of when markets react badly. It's like with Italy or Argentina in the past. If you have unstable governments, people don't believe that you're going to stick to whatever fiscal policy you declare. And Brexit contributed to that. But also economically, Brexit, by cutting off the UK from its largest trading partner, overwhelmingly largest trading partner, Europe, making things more expensive for people in the UK, making shortages of certain kinds of workers and goods and services in the UK, made inflation worse, made income worse. Mm. So it took what was a general global problem and made it worse for the UK. 
You know, so much about what you're describing sounds familiar, a divided public um, uh, concern about people ignoring expertise. And the U.S. is about to have midterms, which could shift power in Congress to Republicans. Is there something that conservatives in the U.S. could learn from the mistakes of conservatives in the U.K.? I think they should, Leila. I think it's a fair thing. It's less about expertise and more about institutions, Mm -hmm. that you don't just trivially throw aside basic common sense norms Mm -hmm. just for the sake of a quick political point. We hear House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy talking about playing games with the debt ceiling, which in a time where we've spent trillions of dollars in the last few years to deal with COVID, to deal with energy, that's irresponsible. Adam Posen of the Peterson Institute for International Economics. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. California voters are deciding whether to add a state constitutional amendment that protects abortion rights, but specifics are hard to come by. KQED's April Demboski reports. Before the final legislative vote on the amendment, one Democrat after another stood up and declared their commitment to women's health, autonomy, and equality. But then Republican Kevin Kiley asked a pointed question. California law generally bars the performance of an abortion past the point of fetal viability. Would this constitutional amendment change that? The legislative chamber went quiet. For a full 30 seconds, no one said anything. Democratic Assembly Speaker Anthony Rendon whispered with colleagues. He asked to have the question repeated. Then he went quiet again. I'll answer that question and others in my closing. He never did. Under current California law, abortion for any reason is allowed up to viability, the point at which a fetus can survive outside the womb. But the constitutional amendment doesn't mention the word viability anywhere. That's why I can't support this constitutional amendment today, because of what's missing from it. Republican Assemblymember James Gallagher says his twin boys were born two and a half months premature. They were alive and they were people Without explicit time limits on abortion, he says the amendment gets the balance wrong between the rights of the mother and the fetus. It says nothing about their rights. Throughout the debate, there were several awkward moments when Democrats scrambled to answer questions or even seemed confused by the language of their own proposed amendment. But doctors like Pratima Gupta, who helped draft the amendment, say there was no mistake here. The word viability was left out on purpose. Every pregnancy is individual, and it's a continuum. She says people come into pregnancy with a range of pre-existing health conditions, diabetes, anemia, high blood pressure. All of these very nuanced factors determine whether a fetus is viable. For example, if I see a patient who has broken their bag of water at 23 weeks of pregnancy, That doesn't mean that it's viable or not viable. In recent years, at least three other states have removed gestational age limits from their abortion laws, including Colorado, New Jersey, and Vermont. Abortion opponents say if California follows suit, women will be lining up for abortions when they're eight months pregnant, for whatever reason at all. But the latest research suggests this is not going to happen. There's a very small percentage of abortions that take place at and after 21 weeks. It's about... 1%. Elizabeth Nash is an abortion policy analyst at the Guttmacher Institute. She says women seek abortions later in pregnancy because of serious medical complications and increasingly legal barriers. It may be that 
They're delayed because there are lots of restrictions they have to comply with. Maybe because they need to travel for an abortion. It may be that they can't get time off of work or that it was a wanted pregnancy and something happened. Even in California, polls show voters get more uncomfortable with abortion the later it gets in pregnancy. But when it comes to this amendment, almost three quarters say they're going to vote for it. The politics of viability have changed. Mary Ziegler is a law professor at UC Davis. With the Supreme Court erasing the federal right to abortion, she says the vast majority of Californians are not inclined to nitpick. These viability arguments that had obviously been compelling for decades don't land the same way. Ziegler says if the amendment passes, the wording does open the door to allowing abortion at any point in pregnancy, but it will likely be left to the courts for the final interpretation. For NPR News, I'm April Domboski. This story comes from NPR's partnership with KQED and Kaiser Health News. This is NPR News. I'm Rupa Shinoy. Coming up on WBUR's Morning Edition, Republicans could make big gains in the fast-approaching midterm congressional races across the country. But here in New England, support for former President Trump seems to be working against Republican candidates. It's 721. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Dublin School, Southern New Hampshire Boarding and Day School, rooted in curiosity, kindness, and fun, grades 9 through 12. Open house November 6th, dublinschool.org. I'm Scott Simon. Are you thinking about trading in your car? Why not donate it to this station instead? We'll turn it into the programs you love. Just go to WBUR.org. More than a million Black Americans fought for the United States in World War II, a call to arms that posed a painful question. Should I sacrifice my life to live half American? Is the America I know worth defending? I'm Kimberly Atkins-Store, World War II from a Black perspective. That's on point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Riders on the Newburyport commuter line rail line should expect delays of up to 45 minutes this morning. A signal problem means trains have to operate at a lower speed between Ipswich and Rowley. And your forecast showers this morning, otherwise cloudy with a high near 62. Right now it's 54 degrees in Boston at 722. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Orion Pictures presenting Till based on the true story of Mamie Till Mobley's fight for justice for her son, Emmett Till, starring Danielle Deadweiler, now playing in select theaters everywhere October 28th. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. And from Progressive, Progressive commercial insurance protects small businesses, from retailers to tradespeople. Progressive covers a variety of business needs with a range of coverages. More at ProgressiveCommercial.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. 
This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Many analysts expect Republicans to make big gains in Congress this election season, retaking the House and perhaps the Senate. But as WBUR's Anthony Brooks reports, it's still hard for many conservatives to beat Democrats in New England, especially those Republicans aligned with former President Donald Trump. New Hampshire is home to one of the key races that could determine control of the U.S. Senate. Thank you. On a recent morning, Don Bolduc showed up in Nashua to answer questions from the local Chamber of Commerce. Bolduc is a retired brigadier general and a conservative Republican running to replace Democrat Maggie Hassan. I have found the three problems by listening and learning. Inflation, inflation, inflation. That's the problem. Bolduc wants to keep the focus on the economy, but he's having a hard time distancing himself from Trump's big lie that the election was stolen. Bolduc pushed that claim during the primary, but quickly reversed his position after he won. I'm done. I'm done. In the past, people can change their mind. They can, but it's difficult for Bolduc to escape the appearance that his pivot was an obvious political calculation to appeal to more moderate voters across New Hampshire. Bolduc denies that. And I told President Trump that I don't believe the election was stolen. He didn't like hearing it. That's fine. I, I, do, I no longer have that position, and I'm not doing it to cater to anybody. Like many Republicans, Bolduc hopes to ride a red wave into the U.S. Senate this year. Inflation is high, President Biden's approval is low, and New Hampshire has long been considered a purple state where Republicans can win. But New Hampshire is also a moderate state where abortion rights are popular. Donald Trump is not, and most voters believe Biden won the 2020 election. Democratic incumbent Maggie Hassan is trying to use all those issues against Bolduc. He's an election denier. He's spent over a year stoking the big lie. What you're seeing now is Don Bolduc trying to hide and mislead people about how extreme he actually is. The strategy might be working. Polls suggest Hassan has a solid lead. Similarly, Democrats are trying to focus on abortion and Trump to hang on to New Hampshire's two congressional seats. In one of the races, Democrats have attacked Republican Robert Burns, a Trump ally, for proposing that a panel of doctors decide if a woman truly needs an abortion to save her life. Here's Burns on WMUR responding to what Democrats call his death panel idea. I believe that all women should should be afforded that second and third opinion. And quite frankly, it should be required, particularly when you have mothers of lower income status that might not, English might not be their first language. And I wouldn't call that a death panel. That's a life panel. In the primary, Burns beat the more moderate Republican George Hansel thanks in part to spending by Democrats, who believe Burns will be easier to beat. Polls suggest he's now running well behind the incumbent Democrat, Annie Custer. Custer says Burns and Bolduc represent a new breed of hard-right candidates in New Hampshire. Abortion death panels. At first, we didn't even know what he was talking about. We've seen conservative Republican politicians, but we've never seen this level of extreme. It's not just New Hampshire. Across New England, many pro-Trump, anti-abortion candidates have beat out more moderate contenders, despite arguments that moderates would stand a better chance of beating Democrats in the general elections. In Republican primary world, the whole country's Alabama. Bill Curry is a political writer and a Democrat who ran unsuccessfully for governor of Connecticut and advised President Bill Clinton. 
when you go into a Republican primary today, that electorate is so staunchly Trump. And in New England, in state after state, the electorate is somewhere else entirely. Curry points to this year's U.S. Senate race in Connecticut, in which Democrat Richard Blumenthal is running for a third term. Connecticut Republicans thought they had a good chance to beat him. But with the help of Trump's endorsement, the conservative Leora Levy won the nomination. And today, Blumenthal has a double-digit lead and the race is effectively over. There can always be miracles in politics, but I don't think you'll see one in Connecticut this year. Curry says allegiance to Trump in Republican primaries is leading to the disappearance of traditional moderate New England Republicans. People like William Weld and Governor Charlie Baker of Massachusetts, who generally supported abortion rights and refused to back Trump. In fact, the pro-Trump anti-abortion Republican hoping to succeed Baker, Jeff Deal, is running more than 20 points behind Democrat Maura Healey. And Healy is eager to tie Deal to the former president, who remains deeply unpopular in Massachusetts. This is really clear in this election. My opponent is Donald Trump's candidate for governor. The one race in New England where a Republican is favored to win is also the one featuring a moderate, Alan Fung. He's the former Republican mayor of Cranston, Rhode Island, running for Congress in the solidly blue state. Fung supports abortion in many circumstances and is willing to part company with the former president. Donald Trump from day one, you know, his policies might be one thing, but I think, you know, let's face it, not a guy that I would hang out with. Polls show Fung is running well ahead of Democrat Seth Magaziner, even though President Biden carried the district by 13 points. Fung could end up winning without Trump's help and become the first Republican to represent Rhode Island's 2nd District since 1988. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Anthony Brooks. For more on this year's elections in Massachusetts, check out our new voter guide. The address is easy to remember. It's wbur.org slash voter guide. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BU's Metropolitan College, offering a part-time master's degree in arts administration and a graduate certificate in arts management focused on the management, fundraising, policy, and legal issues of mission-driven arts organizations. Learn more at bu.edu met. And Direct Tire and Auto Service, proud to support WBUR and Public Radio to help keep quality programming alive. DirectTire.com. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Amy Held. Russia is losing ground in Ukraine's south and east eight months into its invasion. And as Ukrainian troops advance toward the southern occupied city of Kherson, there are signs Russia's military is in retreat. Ukrainian Colonel General Oleksandr Sersky talked to ABC about the gains. Of course we are winning. and. Uh, it's important that we are winning mentally. We know what we are fighting for, uh, but still, this war is very hard. Tens of millions of Ukrainians under rising pressure as temperatures fall. Russia is attacking their heating infrastructure and power grid. People are planning their days around blackouts and conserving energy. With just over two weeks to go before the November midterms, early voting is underway. A third of the Senate is up for re-election, along with the entire House. As Democrats fight to hang on to their slim majority, millions have already cast their ballots in several states. 
In Georgia, early turnout is up compared to the last midterms. From member station WABE in Atlanta, Alex Helmick reports former President Barack Obama is set to campaign there this week. Two big party candidates are set to appear with Obama in Atlanta Friday evening. Incumbent U.S. Senator Raphael Warnock is in a tight battle against Republican Herschel Walker. And Stacey Abrams is again taking on incumbent Brian Kemp after narrowly losing in 2018. It's NPR News. From WBOR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Flu season is officially underway in Massachusetts. So far, state data show the severity is low, but there appear to be more cases now than at the same time over the last three years. WBUR's Gabriella Emanuel has more on what to expect. When talking with flu experts, there's one thing they say a lot. We really can't predict it very well. Every flu season is different. And uh, especially now in the setting of COVID, the flu seasons have been very different. That's Larry Madoff with the Massachusetts Department of Public Health. He says he worries we could be in for a bad flu season. People have less immunity because there wasn't much flu the past few years. And Australia saw a rough flu season with three times the normal number of cases. The southern hemisphere often foreshadows what happens up here. So Madoff urges people to get the flu vaccine and do it soon. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Gabriella Emanuel. The two men killed in a plane crash in New Hampshire were licensed to fly. Aviation officials tell the Boston Globe there weren't reports of problems before the crash Friday night in Keene. The plane crashed into a multifamily building shortly after it took off. No one in the building was injured. The cause of the crash is under investigation. A heads-up to overnight drivers in Boston, the Callahan Tunnel from downtown to Logan Airport will close tonight at 11 and stay closed until tomorrow morning. State transportation officials say it'll allow crews to do some construction work. The tunnel should reopen tomorrow at 5 a.m. It's 7.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Music Emporium, guitar sellers for more than 50 years, celebrating the enduring presence of music made on the front porch and center stage. More at themusicemporium.com. The 3-3 three and three Patriots will be in the national spotlight tonight as they host the Chicago Bears. In basketball, the Celtics will be on the road to face the Chicago Bulls. In baseball, this year's World Series will pit the Houston Astros against the Philadelphia Phillies. The Astros swept the Yankees to win the AL title, while the Phillies beat the Padres to win the NL title. Game one of the World Series will be Friday. And in your forecast, we'll have a rainy Monday morning, plus maybe a thunderstorm. Temperatures will be in the low 60s. Cloudy this afternoon, then rain is likely again tonight. It'll fall to the upper 50s. Tomorrow, cloudy and mid to upper 60s. A slight chance of rain in the afternoon. It's 54 degrees in Boston at 734. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. And from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital markets solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil in Washington, D.C. 
And I'm May Martinez in Los Angeles, California. The Communist Party Congress wrapped up in China over the weekend, and it was historic. Leader Xi Jinping emerged with virtually unchecked power as he embarks on his third five-year term as party boss and possibly beyond. Here to talk us through the outcomes of the Congress and what they mean, we're joined by NPR's John Ruich, who is on the line from Beijing. John, so explain how all this went down. Sure. Well, let me offer a little bit of context to help understand this. Um, this was a party congress, which is it's a time when the leadership is reshuffled. Uh, there's an opaque period in the run-up to party congresses where analysts say there are all sorts of backroom deals happening among power brokers in the party. And, and usually the outcome uh, is a sort of balance of power to some degree where factions and patronage networks within the party all get sort of some rep representation at the top levels of the party. That did not happen this time around. Xi Jinping seems to have outmaneuvered everybody. Uh, the Politburo Standing Committee, which is the pinnacle of power, it's seven members, including Xi, you know, in that he got rid of two people who he didn't like. Uh, and so now it's stacked with Xi's men, uh, including the Shanghai Party chief, a man named Li Chang, who presided over the controversial lockdown of that city in the spring. You know, a lot of people in that city are still upset about it. Many thought this guy Li Chang's political star was uh, falling, you know, but it's Xi Jinping's zero COVID policy. Li Chang saw it through and he's been rewarded. He's now the number two official in China behind Xi Jinping. What does all of this mean in a practical sense in terms of things like foreign policy and also China-U.S. relations? Sure. I mean, the Congress endorsed Xi's agenda across the board, and it's very much an agenda of boosting China's strength, clamping down on dissent, increasing self-sufficiency, positioning China to be able to withstand growing pressures from outside, uh, things like that. The personnel changes now mean that Xi has a sort of loyal yes-man, really, to help carry out these policies, according to Chong Jiayan, who's a, uh, an associate professor of political science at the National University of Singapore. So what that means is that what we've seen in the past few years, the wolf warrior diplomacy, the toughness on disputes, the friction with the US, the pressure on Taiwan, South China Sea, et cetera, all that will continue. Likely it may even increase because there are fewer checks or other opinions. In other words, there's really no one to tell Xi no. Uh, to be fair, stability is still extremely important to the Communist Party. And so, you know, it doesn't want things to go off the rails completely with the U.S. But it's worth bearing in mind that, you know, Xi Jinping broke a lot of norms and rules to get where he is, like the power sharing thing. Uh, China's an opaque system to, to begin with. And now so there are fewer guideposts sort of along the way to help people understand how it all works. And Chong says that means that you know, possibly misunderstanding, miscalculation. The risk of that is higher now. And I know the uh, economy in China has been hurting a bit. Uh, what's the takeaway from the Congress when it comes to that? Well, they waited until after the Congress was over to announce third quarter GDP, which is what they did today. It showed that growth is picking up somewhat, but the story is still pretty grim. A few other important things emerged from the Congress. You know, it gave a strong signal that one of the big sort of immediate things that's dragging the economy down is not going to change anytime soon. That's the zero COVID policy. And I talked with Edward Cunningham about another key issue. He's a China expert at Harvard University's Kennedy School of Government. I mean, I don't envy, obviously, Xi Jinping in the sense that He's unveiled the, the leadership, right? And then you look at it, and sure, it makes sense. There's a lot of consolidation of power. But if you look at them, there really are no people left who have real experience uh, on the economy. It's loyalty above all else. All else, Investors are nervous, and you know, stocks in China and Hong Kong fell pretty sharply today. NPR's John Ruich in Beijing. John, thanks. You bet. <laughs> 
Harvey Weinstein, once one of Hollywood's most powerful movie producers, is back in Los Angeles to face sexual assault charges. Weinstein was extradited to California for this second criminal trial. He's charged with 11 counts of sexual assault. Weinstein is currently serving a 23-year sentence in New York after being convicted on similar charges there. NPR culture correspondent Mandalit Del Barco has been following the story, a warning that this report includes descriptions of sexual assault. Good morning, Mandalit. Good morning, Lena. So could you outline the charges in this particular trial? Sure. Well, in California, five women alleged that Harvey Weinstein sexually assaulted them between 2004 and 2013. Now, Weinstein has pleaded not guilty to counts of what the law calls forcible rape, oral copulation, sexual battery by restraint, and sexual penetration by use of force. According to the district attorney's office, some of these alleged attacks happened in hotel rooms. And that's in line with the pattern documented by The New Yorker and The New York Times who made this news public, as you might remember. uh, Women say that the Hollywood producer lured them with promises of career advice, and then he demanded sexual favors with threats that he would ruin their careers if they didn't comply. And as you noted, Layla, Weinstein is already serving a 23-year prison sentence in New York for similar charges by a former actress and a former assistant to a TV show. And here in L.A., he could face a sentence of up to 140 years in prison. Now, nine men and three women have been selected. Do we know anything about the jury that will determine Weinstein's fate? You know, uh, during jury selection, some people admitted that they were ambivalent or they had no opinion about or they never heard of the Me Too movement. That, of Mm. course, is the social media movement sparked by the news of Harvey Weinstein. That movement has exposed sexual misconduct by very powerful men in business, politics and entertainment. One of the jurors who was selected reportedly said she was on the fence about Me Too. And she said, quote, I believe most women, but not necessarily all. Some of the jurors reportedly expressed some doubt about whether they could find a guilty verdict in a sexual assault case with no DNA evidence. In this trial, there is no such evidence. Hmm. I have to say, I'm surprised there's anyone left who hasn't heard of the Me Too movement. So we're expected to hear from a number of accusers. How long will the trial last? Well, here in Los Angeles, nine of Weinstein's alleged victims are expected to testify against him. That includes fashion models and also Jennifer Siebel Newsom, an actress and documentary filmmaker. She's married to California Governor Gavin Newsom, and she's been public about being sexually assaulted during a purported work meeting with Weinstein. Also, the prosecutors plan to call dozens of witnesses to testify against Weinstein in the coming weeks, maybe 50 of them. Their identities are not yet known, except for the very famous actor Mel Gibson, who is a friend of one of the accusers. The judge has ruled that he can testify. And this trial in L.A. could take a few months, but even after it's over, it's not the end of legal proceedings for Harvey Weinstein. He's appealing his New York verdict, and prosecutors in London have authorized charges against him from alleged incidents in 1996. NPR's Mandalit Del Barco in Los Angeles. Thank you so much, Mandalit. Thank you, Leila.
This is NPR News. I'm Rupa Shanoi in Boston. Coming up on Morning Edition, there's a wave of early retirements happening among older workers who, more than any other age group, have decided not to return to their jobs after the pandemic. And in our next hour, Democratic New Hampshire Senator Maggie Hassan won her last race by a thousand votes. Now she faces a far-right candidate with stronger-than-expected support. In your forecast, a good chance of showers and maybe thunderstorms this morning, cloudy this afternoon. It'll be right around 60. Tonight, more rain likely, cooling only slightly to the upper 50s. Tomorrow, cloudy in the mid-60s and a slight chance of rain mid-afternoon. It's 54 degrees in Boston at 743. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ceres, a nonprofit working to build a just, sustainable future for people and the planet. How can companies stabilize climate, protect water, and build a just and inclusive economy? Ceres Roadmap 2030 has strategies and solutions. Find them at ceres.org slash WBUR. Now in business news, Boston-based Fidelity Investments is adding 100 new employees to its cryptocurrency unit. The company already doubled the division's workforce since late May. Bloomberg reports the team will have 500 workers by next spring. Workers at the Starbucks on Federal Street in downtown Crossing are unionizing. The Starbucks union says workers unanimously passed the effort. It is the 15th store in the state to unionize. Versace is opening its first outlet location in New England. The store is in the Rentham Village Premium Outlets. The Boston Business Journal reports this is Versace's second retail store in the state. The other is at Copley Place. It's 744. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Amazon Business. From small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business works to help simplify the supplies buying process. Learn more at AmazonBusiness.com. And from your part-time controller specializing in nonprofit accounting. Your part-time controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs, remotely or in person. More at YourPartTimeController.com. And from the Annie E. Casey Foundation. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil. And I'm A. Martinez. Even amid record inflation, there has been some good news about the economy in recent months. Americans are getting back to work, making up for much of the pandemic's decline in the workforce. But who's not back? Many older workers. NPR's Andrew Hsu reports from Southern Maryland. Lately, Dina Bear has been hard at work on his house. Well, this is my living room, and I'm proud of this floor. A month ago, this was terrible carpet. It's now beautifully laid laminate that looks just like hardwood flooring. It really has transformed this room, and now I sit here and go, why am I leaving? This is a great house. Why he's leaving is because he just retired from his job at the University of Maryland Honors College. He'd been an academic advisor there for 28 years and thought he might stick around for another five but the pandemic changed everything. First came working from home, no more hour plus commute each way. I had time in the morning and then time in the evening thinking about and obsessively looking at retirement planners, you know, calculators and things like that. And then came a second happy development. 
I reconnected with someone down in North Carolina that I had known years and years ago. But after remote work ended, getting down to North Carolina to see her was harder. So he started doing the math to see if he could make something work. Now this is a guy who grows his own vegetables, cuts his own firewood, and heats his home with a wood stove. So you can imagine, after years of frugal living, plus big gains in the market, things were looking good. And it just dawned on me at some point that there's enough money there. If I worked for five more years, the only result of that would be I would die with more money in the bank. Instead, Dine Bear chose love. He bought a fixer-upper in North Carolina when interest rates were still 3%. And at the end of July, when he was just shy of 55, he retired. Lauren Bauer, a fellow in economic studies at the Brookings Institution, is not surprised by stories like his. She's seen them in the data. One of the reasons that we saw older workers feel empowered to leave the labor market during COVID is that their balance sheets were fine. And that's especially true for college-educated older workers. The pandemic gave many of them time to rethink their priorities. It also left many of them in good financial shape. Bauer points out this is very unlike what happened after the Great Recession, when the housing market crashed and many older workers couldn't retire because they couldn't afford to. In fact, in those years, older workers helped grow the economy, making up for the under 55 crowd who dropped out of the workforce. But since COVID, it's reversed. Now, older workers, including those 65 and over, sitting on the sidelines, are a big reason the workforce hasn't fully recovered from the pandemic. But Bauer says this isn't all bad news. After all, it's a good thing when older workers can retire. I would rather have people, you know, stay out of the labor force because they're able to retire with financial security than drive them back into the labor force because their situations have become more precarious. Of course, these are uncertain economic times. Inflation is at 8%. The stock market's tanked. Dine Bear's investment accounts are down 21%. But he's got his house on the market now. And once that sells, he thinks he can ride this downturn out. And if not... It's in the back of my mind as like, plan B, I could work, I could get a part-time job. For now though, you're more likely to catch him riding his motorcycle. Oh, there's such great roads down there. You know, I'm out in Western North Carolina with the mountains and everything. Enjoying his retirement. Andrea Shu, NPR News. This is NPR News. I'm Rupa Shanoi in Boston. There's another hour of Morning Edition coming up. And later today at 11 is Radio Boston. Tiziana Deering is here to tell us what they're going to be talking about today. Good morning, Tiziana. Good morning, Rupa. I can't talk right now because I'm busy fantasizing about all the things I'd be doing if I retired early. Yeah. I'm a little, I'm a little distracted. Yeah, sorry. I'll give you a moment then. <laughs> yeah, give me just a second. <laughs> so we actually have Mondays with uh, the mayor today on Radio Boston. So once a month, Boston Mayor Michelle Wu joins us for a big in-depth conversation, as is pretty much always the case. There's a lot to talk to her about, particularly interested in um, the happenings at the intersection of Massachusetts Avenue and Melnia Cass Boulevard mm-hmm. or Mass and Cass last week. She is asking the state to step up with 100 new housing units, asking for help. Uh, that's very interesting while there's a governor's race going on. Mm-hmm. She's got some green infrastructure announcements that she's made. And then, you know, all the ongoing business, schools, policing, violence, lots yeah. to talk to her about. Could throw in the MBTA in there, too. There you go. Yes, we have to talk to her about the T, 100%. Yeah. All right. You have a good show. Thanks for coming in. Thanks, Rupa. That's Radio Boston today at 11 and 3. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston University Academy, where kind and curious high school students who love to learn thrive. Virtual open house November 30th, buacademy.org. I'm Eric Westervelt. NASA scientist Kay Renee Horton thought her dream of going to space was over when she was diagnosed with hearing loss. So when the kids see me, they go, oh my God, you're back from space. And it's like, yes, I went in my imagination, but I went. But now she has hope in real life as she prepares for her first zero-gravity flight. Next time on Here and Now. Today at noon on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Rain this morning and maybe thunderstorms with temperatures rising to the low 60s. Cloudy this afternoon, then showers will probably return toward evening. It'll fall only slightly to the upper 50s. Tomorrow, a good chance of more showers, otherwise overcast and in the mid-60s. Right now, it's 55 degrees in Boston at 751. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil. I'm e. Martinez. And I'm Steve Inskeep. For those who have not heard enough of Donald Trump, here's an opportunity. Bob Woodward has written three books about Trump, and for one of those books, Trump talked with the journalist for hours, and Woodward usually recorded the conversations. He plays them in an audiobook called The Trump Tapes. I have done more for the black community than any other president other than Abraham Lincoln. And Lyndon Johnson. I say more than Lyndon Johnson. Well... Okay. I got criminal justice reform. Right. I did prison reform. I did historically black colleges and universities. Okay. This is Trump wanting to sell himself, wanting to convince me he had done all of the proper things. And in the course of it, you see as I conclude and as the audio tapes show, he did not understand his responsibility as, as president. Let's play a little bit of these conversations that gets a sense of how Trump makes things about himself uh, and his resentment toward his portrayal in the media, I guess we should note here. Phil Rucker and Carol Leonick, two colleagues of yours, wrote a book about Trump. He appears to have read or learned about it, and it reported that Trump visited the scene of Japan's attack on Pearl Harbor in Hawaii, but he barely seemed to understand it, and he really resented that. Let's listen to your conversation. I, I had the movies memorized from the time of my kids, like the greatest movies ever. You know, the original Pearl Harbors are better than the modern ones. It looks yeah. like they were done by a computer. I mean, can you imagine? I studied Pearl Harbor. I talk about it all the time with Abby. I talk about kamikaze pilots. I talk yeah. about all that stuff. I find they write in there that uh, I wanted to know what exactly is Pearl Harbor. Now, you know how insulting that is to me? It's so false. They made it up. That's not a leak, but that's they made it up. Well, I'm going to dispute you on that. All right. Because I don't know. I look as nice as if if they ever made up something. He's a a sleaze bucket. Uh, I, I know him well. He never writes good. So what are you thinking, Bob Woodward, as the president tells you he never writes good? Well, he it's one of his grievances. And I know Phil Rucker and Carol Lennig, colleagues at the Washington Post, they're terrific reporters. Trump is so driven by his internal emotions and reactions, he, he really can't see past the grievances he has about the media, about the opposition, about the investigations of him. And what struck me is you hear it in his voice that 
the anger. He can't step back from his anger. And he's not acting, so, is he? I mean, he actually no, feels as wounded as he says he is. I, I, look, I can't get in his head. All I can do is report. And here you have hours of him as he's dealing with the major issues of the presidency, the virus, foreign affairs, the constant business of being president. And my, my final conclusion is you cannot be this disconnected from the job you have. I, I asked him once, what's the job of the president? He said, to protect the people. Well, on the virus, uh, he totally failed. There are portions of his party that are turning against democracy altogether. I could cite an article from just the other day in which the writer says uh, conservatives need to become radicals. We need to take over and maybe we'll give back power later and, and maybe we won't. Um, do you think that Trump has any affection for democracy? Well, I, I think he doesn't understand democracy. The January 6th insurrection in the House committee on that has laid out so much compelling authoritative evidence. What is the diabolical genius of what Trump did on January 6th and all of the people who aided him in this? That's the weak spot in the system. The Constitution and the law say January 6th, the Congress will certify the winner. This led to Trump's uh, denial, support of the insurrection, and most alarming, the unparalleled pressure on Vice President Pence. One final thing. If it's true that Trump's election in 2016 was part of closing the door on a phase of American history, what's the phase we're in now? We don't know. It's pretty clear to me from my reporting that he's going to run again. He has tens of millions of supporters. The problem and what is so vividly and powerfully demonstrated in these audios is Trump's not comfortable with democracy. It's, uh, you know, it's because only I know there's a time uh, in June of 2020 when he's given a law and order speech and I asked, did anyone uh, help you with that speech? And he says... Yeah, I get, I get people, they come up with ideas, but the ideas are mine, Bob. Uh, Want to know something? Everything's mine. And, and there is an intimacy in this. But the ideas are mine. Bob... Everything is mine. A declaration of ownership in a democracy where we don't have ownership. We all get to vote. There is a, a back and forth. I, I remember when I first heard, I thought, wow. That, and then when I went back this year and listened to this thing, I mean, everything is mine? What, what? So off the tracks, uh, it's, it's, almost, it's almost not explainable. So what do you do as a reporter? You put it all out there, let people decide. 
Bob Woodward has released an audiobook called The Trump Tapes with recordings of his conversations with former President Donald Trump. Thanks so much. Thank you. This is NPR News. Showers, maybe thunderstorms, and low 60s today. More showers tonight in the upper 50s. Cloudy and mid to upper 60s tomorrow with a slight chance of rain. Cloudy and mid 60s on Wednesday with a good chance of more showers. Right now it's 55 degrees in Boston and we're coming up on 8 o'clock. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cityside Subaru on Route 60 in Belmont, where the all-new 2023 Subaru vehicles are arriving. Love is out there. CitysideSubaru.com. Senior business reporter Yasmin Amr. This is 90.9 WBUR FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Former UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson drops out of the race to replace Liz Truss. Former Chancellor Rishi Sunak is now frontrunner and would be the first PM of color. It's Monday, October 24th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, someone has been using voiceover IP to falsely report active shooters at schools in dozens of states. You could see that he was using this phone number specifically to call schools or the dispatch to the sheriff's office or police department where the school was. Also this hour, some Massachusetts communities are looking for solutions to rising temperatures beneath their feet. The reason that our cities are hot is because we have so much pavement. And new reports show a majority of products sold by the largest food companies are considered unhealthy. Rain and low 60s today. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. Ukrainian forces are making slow progress toward a key regional city in the southern part of the country. NPR's Nathan Rott reports Russia is urging all residents of Kherson to leave. Russian-backed authorities in Kherson say thousands of people have left the city since civilians were ordered to evacuate on Saturday. The Institute for the Study of War, a D.C.-based think tank, says Russian military leadership has withdrawn officers from the city, moving them to the other side of the Dnieper River and away from Ukraine's counteroffensive. Kherson is the only regional capital to be captured by Russia in the nearly eight months since it began its full-scale invasion, and Ukraine has signaled for months its intent to take it back. Russia has used the time to fortify positions in the city and recapturing it, could prove difficult. Nathan Rapp, NPR News, Dnipro, Ukraine. Former British Chancellor Rishi Sunak has emerged as the frontrunner to replace Prime Minister Liz Truss after former leader Boris Johnson pulled out of the race on Sunday. NPR's Frank Langford reports if Sunak gains enough votes by the British Conservative ruling party, he would become the United Kingdom's first Prime Minister of color. Sunak still faces competition. Former Defense Secretary Penny Mordaunt remains in the race, but Sunak has the backing of more than six times as many Conservative Party lawmakers than she does. The Sunak premiership would be history-making. A Hindu of Indian descent, 
He would be the first to occupy the office who was not a Christian. But Sunak's potential breaking of the race barrier is not getting heavy media coverage in Britain. That's partly because it would be more evolutionary than revolutionary. Ethnic minorities have held top jobs in conservative governments in recent years. The last four chancellors of the Exchequer were ethnic minorities, as well as the last three home secretaries. Frank Langford, NPR News, London. Opening arguments begin today in the second criminal trial of Harvey Weinstein. NPR's Mandalit Del Barco reports the proceedings in Los Angeles come as the former Hollywood producer appeals the sentence that he's currently serving in New York. Weinstein is already serving a 23-year prison sentence in New York for similar charges by a former actress and a former assistant to a TV show. And here in L.A., he could face a sentence of up to 140 years in prison. That's NPR's Mandalit Del Barco reporting. President Biden will address the Democratic National Committee today in Washington, D.C. His speech comes about two weeks before the midterm elections. Biden is expected to keep abortion rights in the spotlight and double down on Democratic efforts to protect reproductive freedoms. You're listening to NPR News in Washington. Fans took to the streets in Philadelphia last night after the Phillies took Game 4 of the National League Championship Series against the San Diego Padres. Corey Sharber from member station WHYY reports the Phils are heading to the World Series for the first time in more than a decade. Philadelphia lived up to being the city of brotherly love as thousands of fans came together throughout the city to celebrate the Phillies' NL pennant win. Just outside of Citizens Bank Park, fans broke into cheers and some into tears as another World Series win for the team could be near. It's been more than a decade since the Phillies' last World Series appearance. For some fans like Mike Diani, it's been nearly half a lifetime in the making. You know, it kind of gives you a good perspective of what you can appreciate uh, with this and, uh, you know, me being a big baseball fan and being just as hungry for this city to have this, you know, it's it's unbelievable. The World Series begins this Friday, October 28th. For NPR News, I'm Corey Sharber in Philadelphia. The Houston Astros swept the New York Yankees in the American League Championship, taking Game 4 6-5 to last night. Astros rookie shortstop Jeremy Pena calls the win a total team effort. Definitely was not easy. You know, there was a lot of work that went into this, you know, a lot of blood, sweat, and tears, you know, and uh, this team stuck with one another. You know, we rooted for one another, and we picked each other up all year, and we battled all year, and uh, it's great to be here at this point. The Astros will face the Phillies in Game 1 of the World Series in Houston on Friday. This is NPR. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shinoy. Early voting is underway across Massachusetts. In Boston, city leaders say nearly 1,100 ballots were cast on Saturday alone. More now from WBUR's Walter Wuthman. There wasn't much foot traffic, but those who did come out were grateful to be able to cast their ballot before Election Day. David Rosen voted at the Margarita Muniz Academy in Jamaica Plain. Well, I wanted to be sure that I had an opportunity to vote and uh, didn't want to wait until November 8th when who knows. (laughs) Claudia Smith-Reed of Dorchester said she loves voting early and wants to spread the word. They announced it in church, but I'm going to call my friends who are at different churches and encourage people to vote next week because of all the centers that are available. State election officials are predicting lower turnout this year than the last midterm election. 
For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. For more on early and mail-in voting and for more on the ballot questions and other issues facing voters, check out our voter guide. It's at WBUR.org slash voter guide. Math and reading test scores have dropped significantly in Massachusetts. The National Assessment of Educational Progress shows scores in the state have been declining for years, but were worsened by the pandemic. Education officials say it could take more than five years for students to recover from learning they lost. A Newton organization that runs a healthcare network in Haiti is concerned about the grip criminal gangs have on the country. Violence, food shortages, and soaring fuel prices are contributing to a crisis there. Connor Shapiro leads Health Equity International. It has operations in the southern part of the country. He says it's impossible to get food to people. We also aren't able to move medical supplies in at all, uh, and that is making it very difficult to provide critical care including responding to the cholera epidemic that has started for the first time in three years without having any cholera cases. Now there's a massive spike. United Nations leaders are calling for an end to the violence and are working to get food and supplies into the country. Harvard may have to pay $15 million as a result of a missed insurance filing. The university didn't file a timely claim with its insurance company for expenses related to a challenge on its admissions policy. Students for fair admissions filed a lawsuit against Harvard, arguing that its race-conscious admissions policy is unlawful. The New York Times reports that court filings show the lawsuit is costing Harvard nearly $27 million. The case will be heard by the Supreme Court later this month. It's 808. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by AL Prime Energy Consultant, providing wholesale and retail fuel products located in more than 60 communities in and around greater Boston. ALPrime.com. It's New England versus Chicago. In the sports world tonight, the Patriots will host the Bears in Foxborough, while the Celtics visit the Bulls. Rain and even a chance for a thunderstorm today, high in the lower 60s. Another thunderstorm possible overnight, low in the 50s. Cloudy with a slight chance of rain tomorrow in the 60s. It's 55 degrees in Boston at 809. WBUR supporters include CrowdStrike, whose cybersecurity platform is designed to protect organizations by monitoring trillions of cyber events to detect threats and prevent breaches before they happen. CrowdStrike, protection that powers you. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Fadel in Washington. And I'm A. Martinez in Los Angeles, California. In the last two weeks, even more schools around the country have gotten hoax calls claiming that active shooters were on their campuses. It's a continuation of a pattern that NPR has reported on. And now NPR has obtained new information that suggests this is not the first time that a scare campaign like this was conducted against U.S. schools. NPR's Odette Youssef and Jenna McLaughlin join us now. Odette, let's start with you. Uh, Remind us what's been going on. Well, A, someone has been calling schools and law enforcement agencies claiming that there's an active shooter at a school. And this has been prompting what's known as a swatting response, where police and SWAT teams immediately deploy in large numbers to those locations. And when they get there, they find out that the call was a hoax. But this can be pretty terrifying for all involved. So the last time we reported on this, just over two weeks ago, we had counted at least 113 instances of calls that fit a particular pattern since mid-September. Now that number has reached nearly 200 across at least 28 states. 
All right, so tell us about the new information. It was uh, something like this happening before? Yes. Uh, some local authorities have suggested that these calls echo a similar hoax from the spring. And now we've obtained information through an open records request suggesting they might be right. Um, I want you to listen to some audio. Here's a clip from a hoax swatting call made about four weeks ago in Finley, Ohio. In the police department, Seller. Hello, there is an, hello, there is an active shooter at Findley High School. Hello, there is an active shooter at Findley High School. 24 students got injured. Hello, hello, Findley High School. Now, A, I want you to listen to another call that was made five months earlier to the sheriff's office in Bossier Parish, Louisiana. Hello, suspicious backpack has been left in the high school. Hello, Binton High School, number 205. Hello, suspicious backpack has been left in the high school. Now, lots of schools and states across the country received similar false bomb alerts in the spring. And as you could hear, it sounds like the same person who's behind the swatting calls. So we obtained additional records from the investigation that the Bossier Parish Sheriff's Office conducted back in April. And it's provided a really interesting snapshot of how this hoax caller operates. Yeah, they sounded exactly alike. Uh, so tell us more, what has it shown? Well, one piece of information that the Sheriff's Office obtained was a detailed call log of the phone number that had called in this false bomb alert. Captain Shannon Mack of the Bossier Parish Sheriff's Office was the one conducting the investigation. You could see that he was using this phone number specifically to call schools or the dispatch to the Sheriff's Office or Police Department where the school was. And it looks like this was his thing to do all day, every day. And our analysis found that this was indeed the case. Um, on certain days, the caller started making calls at an hour that was morning time for the place they targeted, and they just keep dialing numbers, uh, sometimes with as few as four seconds between hanging up and dialing the next one until they were finished with their day six to eight hours later. Um, our analysis also found that in the roughly six weeks that these records covered, this caller targeted 162 places. More than 90% of those were schools, police or sheriff's departments, dispatch centers, and fire departments. We're going to bring in Jenna McLaughlin. Uh, Jenna, let's start with that technology question. Now, how would this work? Hi, A. So, yeah, this caller was using voice over IP, and that basically means he was making a call over the Internet rather than the phone lines like Zoom or WhatsApp. He was using TextNow, which is a specific free, easy to sign up for service. You can get a new number. I made one using only my NPR email address, and it took me about 10 seconds. No verification needed. One really interesting thing, though, is that all of the IP addresses in the investigation log were actually tracing back to Ethiopia. No, Ethiopia. So have investigators been able to confirm that? So it's still a bit of a mystery. Uh, experts and investigators that we spoke with said that based on the evidence, they don't think that it's likely that the perpetrator used digital disguises to make it look like they're in Ethiopia when they're not. Even so, they could be using a local virtual private network to hide their exact location. And it's still a possibility that they hacked into Ethiopian internet infrastructure or bought access. One source actually shared with us that they found some Ethio Telecom IPs, some local IP addresses that had been compromised and were being sold on the dark web. So they really could be anywhere. Wow, Jenna, is there anything that can be done about this? 
So regardless of where these people actually are, it's really difficult to hunt them down individually. Law enforcement doesn't always get cooperation overseas in places like Ethiopia. Some people think that the solution lies instead with the providers. So experts that track this kind of thing said that a lot of scams lead back to TextNow and that they want the company to do more, to monitor for fraudulent behavior, verify their identity on the sign-up process. Um, and, you know, it, it maybe even get agencies like the FCC to step in and require them to do more. From TextNow's side, they do cooperate with law enforcement. We did see that in this case. And there are challenges to automatically detecting fraud on voice calls. Ultimately, they just want to make it as easy as possible to sign up. What about a new mo or a motive, actually? Any of the new information shed light on that? So typically we see these scams as trying to make money, but that doesn't seem to be the case here. And so far, you know, we've still seen no indication, A, that this ties to any extremist or political agenda. So this remains a mystery. And meanwhile, these swattings continue to happen. NPR's Odette Youssef and Jenna McLaughlin. Thanks, you two. Thanks. New Hampshire is a must-win state for Democrats in their campaign to keep control of the Senate. Democratic Senator Maggie Hassan narrowly won her last race in 2016. This time, she's facing a far-right Republican candidate who wants to keep the focus on the economy. NPR congressional correspondent Deirdre Walsh reports. In the purple state of New Hampshire, voters across the political spectrum agree on the big problem. I mean, we can't I can't afford to live like this. My head's still not above water. The prices are ridiculous. My home electrical bill went from 200 a month to 600 a month. Don Baldick, a retired Army Brigadier General, is hitting inflation hard. Boom! Down comes the hammer from the Biden-Hassan uh, agenda, which skyrockets inflation. Baldick won the GOP primary, echoing former President Trump's false claims that the 2020 election was rigged. The day after that primary win, Baldick reversed himself and said Biden won, but since then has made conflicting public statements. Trying to attract independents, 40 percent of the voters in this state, Baldick told reporters in Rochester, I do not believe the election was stolen. The simple thing is I changed my mind and I have the uh, freedom to do that. Another issue that Baldick has shifted on, abortion. He said he backs a system that protects life from beginning to end. Asked if that means he'd vote no on a federal abortion ban, Baldrick grew frustrated at the topic. Yes, I've said that. I don't know how many times I need to say it. Uh, I can put together a skit for you. Women are on both sides of the abortion issue. Barbara Dunnington, a Baldrick supporter, said the economy is a bigger factor for her. If you can't buy food, if you can't hang on to a job, abortion is not that crucial. But abortion was a major concern for some voters in the lunch crowd at Lou's restaurant in Hanover. Top of mind issues for me are things like women's rights. That's Kimberly Valson, a first-time New Hampshire voter and Democrat. Senator Maggie Hassan, running for her second term, chatted with her and other diners. Do you eat here regularly? I'm your senator. So. In her pitch to voters, Hassan points to her accomplishments. Voted to give Medicare the power to negotiate prescription drug prices. I see. Okay. And uh, voted to make sure people could get tax cuts for making energy efficient improvements. I have a record of delivering on a number of issues, doing it across party lines, um, and doing it the way Granite Staters expect me to. Hassan says her supporters believe the issue of abortion is no less important than inflation. You know, as I started to talk with women about 
inflation, they all changed the subject to abortion. They also said to me, but if my fundamental rights are gone, that's much harder to get back. She warns the race is close and puts some distance between herself and President Biden on the economy. The administration was too slow to recognize the long-term reality of inflation, and they took too long to react to it. Asked about what she was doing about inflation, Hassan pointed to short-term solutions she's advocated for. To release more oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve to help with the price of gas. And as you know, this week, the administration did another release. Hassan touts money for infrastructure projects and investing billions to manufacture products in the U.S. But at a steel company in Greenland, Boldick emphasized to employees that Hassan was out of touch with the reality of rising costs. She's failed. Six years of failure. Fail, 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 fail. He said he'd turn things around. I go to Washington, D.C. to be your United States Senator and work on the real problems that Americans and Grand Staters are having right now. One employee, Shelley Hansen, a Democrat, says she's still figuring out who to support. Um, I had my mind made up who I was going to vote for before this, and now maybe I, I might look a little deeper into it. She voted for Biden in 2020, but is not a fan of the system in Washington. I think it needs to change course. I think the whole thing needs to be shaken up. Both candidates and their allies are flooding the airwaves. One Hassan supporter, Jen Alford Teaser, says one thing is constant here. I, I don't think there will ever be a race in the history of New Hampshire that will never not be close. Republicans need to net just one seat to retake the majority on November 8th. A lot of attention is focused in contests in Georgia and Nevada, but the political fate of the Senate could also be decided here. Deirdre Walsh, NPR News, Hanover, New Hampshire. Coming up later today on All Things Considered, we look at Colleen Hoover, who went from being a social worker to becoming one of the best-selling writers in the U.S. To listen, ask your smart speaker to play NPR or your member station by name. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Morning Edition host Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, climate change is forcing temperatures to rise across the world, including in Massachusetts. To combat the effects, some communities in the Commonwealth are rethinking the use of traditional pavement. It's 821. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org cars. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by AE Events, design and production of corporate and nonprofit events, weddings, and conferences. Website at aeevents.com. Authentic, artful, accomplished. More than a million Black Americans fought for the United States in World War II, a call to arms that posed a painful question. Should I sacrifice my life to live half American? Is the America I know worth defending? I'm Kimberly Atkins-Store, World War II from a Black perspective. That's on point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. 
Showers this morning. We might also see a thunderstorm or two, otherwise cloudy with a high near 62. Tonight, the rain continues and temperatures fall to a low around 58. Tomorrow, fog and clouds in the morning with a high near 67. A slight chance of rain in the afternoon. And there's a good chance of rain on Wednesday, too. It's 55 degrees in Boston at 822. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Orion Pictures presenting Till, based on the true story of Mamie Till Mobley's fight for justice for her son, Emmett Till, starring Danielle Deadweiler, now playing in select theaters everywhere October 28th. And from Avast, a global cybersecurity company with more than 435 million users, Avast is dedicated to helping people take control of their safety and privacy online. Learn more at avast.com. And from Athena Health, creating connected healthcare technology designed to improve patient outcomes and increase efficiency of healthcare practices and organizations. Learn more at athenahealth.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is WB Wars Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. With temperatures rising everywhere because of climate change, officials in local communities are looking for ways to deal with it, and they're finding some ideas on the ground beneath their feet. WBUR's Martha Biebinger reports that many are rethinking the use of traditional pavement, which can bake us on hot days and nights. Color makes a big difference when it comes to pavement and heat. Black asphalt absorbs more sun than concrete and can be 20 degrees hotter. That's why Phoenix, Los Angeles, and a few other cities are painting streets gray or white. And it's why a machine that looks like an oversized floor sander is rolling down the street in front of the Chelsea Boys and Girls Club. It's scouring the asphalt's blacktop, leaving it light gray. The technique is called shot blasting. It's striking, and it's what we hope to see here. Tim Corrigan is an engineer with Weston and Sampson, a firm hired by Chelsea to help figure out how to cool the city's streets. There's a lot of pavement in Chelsea. About 85% of the city is covered by roofs, roads, parking lots, and sidewalks. Our goal is to make the pavement hold less of the heat from the sun and reflect it back into the atmosphere. And this is a pilot project, so this is a, a bit unproven unproven, as in not used in this country as a way to create cooler pavement. Hilary Domino, a senior planner in housing and community development, says Chelsea is trying everything it can to reduce heat that radiates off city streets. It's a serious problem in Chelsea, and there's a lot of health implications to urban heat and extreme urban heat with children. Heat can trigger asthma in kids and adults. Diabetes and high blood pressure can also be harder to manage. Pavement may seem a bit removed from your asthma, But experts say it's a key piece of the problem. The reason that our cities are hot is because we have so much pavement. Carly Zeter studies urban landscape ecology at Concordia University in Montreal. Many communities are planting trees to cool neighborhoods, but Zeter's research shows trees only offset the heat coming off pavement during the day, and only if nearly half of a paved area is in the shade, and that's rare. Pavement that bakes during the day can do even more harm at night. At night, all of this pavement is kind of re-releasing that stored heat that it's collected all day long in the sun. Heat radiating off pavement at night can interfere with sleep. Lack of sleep can make chronic health problems worse because your body doesn't recover from the heat of the day. It's this inability to cool down at night that leads to some of the, the worst health effects. And so 
what we've seen is that reducing the amount of pavement is really critical to reduce nighttime heat. In Massachusetts, the traditional concern is being too cold, not too hot. But Chelsea isn't alone in testing ways to cool pavement. A handful of other communities are painting asphalt with mixed results. So it's actually not quite as good as the marketing material would have you believe. Kevin Butel stands in a city-owned parking lot in Cambridge, painted light gray almost a year and a half ago. It was supposed to bounce most of the sun that hits it back into the sky. Tests show dirt and age cut into that bounce rate, so the lot is retaining more heat than expected. Butel says there are other reasons cities are cautious. As far as pedestrian comfort goes, it can actually be quite a bit less comfortable on a lighter surface than a darker surface because you're getting hit not only by the sun, but also by that heat reflecting off the pavement. Still, Butel says paint may be a good option for cooling parking lots where people don't typically hang out. Vast parking lots contribute to extreme heat in many communities, like Natick, Burlington, Norwood, and Fitchburg, where Nick Erickson is the Public Works Commissioner. So the parking lot that you see here is just a sea of asphalt, and it holds a lot of cars because that's what it was designed to do back in the day. But today, the nearly empty lot in front of many closed stores just soaks up heat. Erickson says it would be great to rip up some of the pavement. He wants to restore a stream that used to run through the lot. Basically creating a new stream channel through the parking lot, green space on either side of the channel, a bridge or two to allow vehicular access to the, or pedestrian access to the store. When municipal leaders like Erickson talk about removing pavement, it's usually to plant more greenery that will absorb water running off streets and prevent flooding. The idea that communities also need these changes to cope with rising temperatures is just starting to take hold. A sledgehammer pounds through layers of asphalt next to a home in one of the state's hotter cities, Somerville. Someone want a crowbar? Sure. Renee Scott hands off her crowbar to another volunteer with Depave the Way. It's a local group that mobilizes to help homeowners remove driveways, or here, pavement that covers most of a yard. Paving yards for easier maintenance is a trend in some cities with lots of rental properties. You know, Somerville is just entirely pavement. It's trying to increase and improve the green space. This is the number one way you can help because so much of the property in Somerville is privately owned. Are we halfway done? Homeowner Darren Begley is anxious to start planting grass and a garden. We want to have like a yard and I have a dog and we want him to have a place to run around and go, you know, use the bathroom and I don't have to put my shoes on. That, that was, the, you know, basically this is all for the dog. Wow, I got a worm here. Driveways are a small part of the pavement challenge communities face as Massachusetts gets used to more hot weather. They're in the early stages of figuring out how to live with less pavement or cool what they have. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Martha Biebinger. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Up next, an update on the tense situation in Haiti as gang violence, crime, poverty, and disease worsen. World leaders are watching closely and debating when to step in. It's 829. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Road Scholar, creating educational travel adventures for adults around the world. Learn more at roadscholar.org learning. And the Museum of Science, it's time to talk about mental health. Join the conversation at Mental Health Mind Matters, a new groundbreaking exhibit. Tickets at MOS.org.
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Amy Held. Eyes are on the British Parliament, where lawmakers are endorsing a candidate for the next prime minister. Rishi Sunak is favored to win. If he does, the 42-year-old conservative former Treasury chief would take on political turmoil and financial upheaval after Liz Truss announced her resignation just 45 days into office. In the U.S., just over two weeks remain before voters determine who will control Congress in the midterm elections. President Biden is set to speak at the Democratic National Committee headquarters later today. The West is widely dismissing baseless claims by Russia that Ukraine is preparing to use what's known as a dirty bomb in its own territory. NPR's Nathan Rott has more from Dnipro, Ukraine. Top diplomats from the U.S., France and Britain rejected the claim in a joint statement as transparently false allegations and a pretext for an escalation in the conflict. Ukrainian officials have said the same. The unsupported accusation from Russia's defense minister comes as Russian troops continue to lose ground on the battlefield. Ukrainian forces are making slow gains in the countries east and south. Russia, meanwhile, continues to bombard the country's energy and heating infrastructure, putting pressure on the tens of millions of civilians still living in Ukraine as winter approaches. Nathan Rott, NPR News, Dnipro, Ukraine. This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. The city of Boston says it's picked up 200,000 needles this year from Boston streets and parks. But some residents say more needs to be done. They point to a nine-year-old boy who was stuck by a needle last week during football practice at Clifford Park in Roxbury. WBUR's Amanda Beeland reports the boys' team is taking precautions. Domingos de Rosa coaches the Boston Bengals. Before each practice at Clifford Park, parents and volunteers walk the field in a grid pattern, looking for used needles. DeRosa says it's time for change. These kids come out here every day. They're concerned about their safety, but they just want to be kids. And for no one to show them the support they need is troubling. So, you know, in, in a year when they turn 15, 16, and they become a part of that lifestyle that everyone wants to keep them away from, now, you know, these are kids that we can't save. They're savable now, not later. DeRosa wants more treatment centers throughout the Commonwealth, so all the burden for services doesn't fall on Roxbury's shoulders. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amanda Beeland. The experiment to reduce the number of lanes on the Mass Avenue Bridge is going to be kept full-time. That pilot program got rid of one lane heading into Cambridge and made the bike lane wider. State transportation officials say that'll become the permanent layout on the bridge. The move also frees up space for dedicated bus lanes on each end of the bridge. A former U.S. Transportation Secretary will speak to state lawmakers tomorrow about safety failures at the T. After serving in the Obama administration, Rayla Hood was part of an independent panel that examined the T in 2019. He's expected to share how its findings identified many of the same issues as this year's Federal Transit Administration probe. It's 833. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Merrimack College, offering master's in education programs and credentials for teachers with a state-aligned curriculum. Online.merrimack.edu. The Patriots will host the Chicago Bears tonight, while the Celtics will be on the road against the Chicago Bulls. And this year's World Series will be the Houston Astros against the Philadelphia Phillies. The Astros swept the Yankees to win the American League crown, while the Phillies topped the Padres for the NL title.
We'll have a rainy Monday morning, plus maybe a thunderstorm. Temperatures will be in the low 60s. Cloudy this afternoon, then rain is likely again tonight. It'll fall into the upper 50s. Tomorrow, cloudy and mid to upper 60s. A slight chance of rain in the afternoon. We might not see the rain. We might not see the sun until Thursday. It's 55 degrees in Boston at 8:34. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. Learn more at indeed.com/npr. And from BetterHelp. Connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and relationships. 25,000 therapists are available through BetterHelp using a computer or smartphone. BetterHelp.com public. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez in Los Angeles, California. And I'm Leila Faldil in Washington. Haiti is a country on the verge of collapse. Cholera is spreading. Food and fuel prices are out of control. And the gangs of Port-au-Prince have a stranglehold on much of the capital, including the main oil terminal. Added to this, there's a political crisis. Prime Minister Ariel Henry is struggling to maintain his grip on power, with protesters regularly taking to the streets to demand his removal. His decision to ask the outside world to send a specialized armed force has only served to inflame people's anger. Ader Peralta is in Haiti's capital, Port-au-Prince, and joins us now. Good morning, Ader. Good morning, Leila. So there's a lot of talk of Haiti on the brink. Is this borne out by what you've seen and heard in the past few days? Yeah, things are dire. Um, the government seems am- absent. I mean, from the little things like trash not getting picked up, so it's piling uh, up on the streets to serious things. Uh, as you mentioned, some parts of Port-au-Prince are under siege. Gangs have erected blockades, and for more than five weeks now, they have not allowed fuel trucks to get gasoline from the fuel depots. Mm. And just across uh, the airport, there are thousands of people who have built a, a makeshift camp at Hugo Chavez Square um, in. These are people who have been pushed out of their neighborhood by violence. Um, and it was there that I met Fabiola Jolme, uh, washing clothes in a bucket. She says as a new gang took over her neighborhood, they burnt down her house. They didn't care that she had nothing to do with the rival gang, that she was just a mother trying to live. They don't need to identify who you are. As long as you live in that area, in that neighborhood, they will just come. They will kill you, they will burn your house, they will burn your body. Do you have any hope that the government can fix this? I don't see hope. Because there is no police now in Cesare. All police officers left. Even here at this camp, the government is completely absent. Even though there is a cholera outbreak, there's no clean drinking water. People are sleeping on wet ground in makeshift tents. One man walks across the camp screaming in disbelief. How can we live like this? In another corner, Shalan Joseph cradles her baby. He's two, but he's tiny. Malnutrition has lightened his hair, and he's so skinny, you can see his bones through his skin. Joseph says she's been trying to breastfeed him, but all he does is cry. She cannot really feed a baby. So he's not eating? Like, so. Feed him, he vomits the, the food. 
she hasn't taken him to the top. No money. Yeah. I don't have money. It's a collapse. They fought women. It's a collapse. That is Senator Patrice Dumont. He says Haiti is at a breaking point. No justice. We have no justice. Senate will get cut members. We were supposed to have 30 members for the Senate. We only have 10. Economy Our economy is completely destroyed. Dumont says for decades, corrupt politicians have armed gangs for personal gains. The assassination of President Jovenel Moïse last year created a power vacuum, and now the gangs are out of control. They've attacked police stations. For five weeks now, they've blocked the country's main fuel depots, and they are terrorizing the population. The corruption, he says, has now infected every corner of the country, and it's the Haitian people who are paying the price. We don't know yet where this outbreak of cholera came from, but recently cases have been rising fast, so the charity Doctors Without Borders has begun reopening treatment centers across Port-au-Prince. In the first week, we were on average of 30 admissions a week. Now, in, in the third week, we had about 150 admissions a day. Jean-Baptiste Marion, the MSF project coordinator, walks through a treatment center. They have a generator because there is no reliable electricity, and some of their medical supplies have gotten stuck in the blockade. The, the issue is how long is this going to last, and how long are we be able to sustain that, that situation? He says they also suspect people suffering from cholera are stuck in their homes because of the insecurity. Gilene Basile says she was sick for a week before she could finally make it here. So I could not make it before because I had no money for transportation. The blockade means that the price of everything has ballooned. She survived cholera, she says, but she spends her days thinking about how she will feed her kids. She spends nights thinking about the gunfire she hears outside. We don't live anymore. Everything is difficult. And Haiti died. You understand that? The streets of Port-au-Prince are mostly empty these days, but the pews at St. Pierre Catholic Church are full on Sunday. Johnny Jean Baptiste, who's 29, says he used to come to church to pray for his family, to pray for his health, or sometimes his material needs. <laughs> And nowadays, one thing I'm asking God is to give us peace. Does it feel like things can change? <laughs> As a young man, I believe that things can change because if things remain the same, that will be the end of my life. I ask him if he means that literally, and he says, absolutely. I mean, it's hard to hear the desperation in people's voices trying to survive violence, the mother who can't afford to help her malnourished baby, and then there's no one to turn to, the government absent, as they told you. So so what's the solution? Is it international intervention? 
I mean, that's complicated um, because pretty much everyone I've spoken to here um, think that an intervention is a bad idea. Um, Haiti has a long history of international interventions, including a U.S. occupation, um, and none of it has led to any long-term solution. So people here have been protesting against the new intervention, and demonstrators plan to march to the U.N. compound today. But, you know, that desperation, because of that desperation, nearly everyone agrees that it's also hard to think of any other way to bring Haiti back from the brink. NPR's Ader Peralta reporting from Port-au-Prince. Thank you so much, Ader. Thank you, Leila. This is NPR News. I'm Rupa Shinoy in Boston. Next here on Morning Edition, two new reports reveal a dire picture of nutrition in the U.S. One finds that about 70 percent of products sold by the largest food companies are unhealthy. A good chance of showers and maybe thunderstorms this morning. Cloudy this afternoon. It'll be right around 60. Tonight, more rain likely, cooling only slightly to the upper 50s. Tomorrow, cloudy in the mid-60s and a slight chance of rain mid-afternoon. Right now, it's 55 degrees in Boston at 843. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Chestnut Hill School, leading the way in elementary education since 1860. Grow today, transform tomorrow. On the web at tchs.org. And Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts, Medicare Advantage plans start as low as $0 per month with new benefits like enhanced dental coverage. BlueCrossMA.com slash go. Now, in business news, the maker of Sam Adams Beer says earnings are still on the rise, despite a significant drop in hard seltzer sales. Boston Beer Company says sales of its truly hard seltzers dropped 21 percent in its third quarter. Overall, the company's revenues increased 6 percent compared to last year. Natick-based PIC Therapeutics says it's getting $35 million to fund a treatment for drug-resistant breast cancer. The company says part of that funding was made by Waltham-based Lumira Ventures. The price of diesel is on the rise in Massachusetts. AAA says the average price for diesel is $5.68 a gallon. That's up 20 cents compared to last week and up 73 cents in the last month. The cost of regular fuel is holding steady. It currently costs an average of $3.59 a gallon. That's just one cent lower compared to last month. It's 844. Funding for WBUR's business report comes from Boston University Academy, where high school students pursue their passions as far as they can take them. Virtual open house November 30th. Be curious, be kind, be you at BUA. Online at buacademy.org. Two new reports paint a dismal picture of nutrition in the U.S. One says about 70% of products sold by the largest food companies, including Kraft, Heinz, and Kellogg, are considered unhealthy, and that's the food that stocks a lot of U.S. grocery shelves. And new Gallup data shows just how much Americans' diets are lacking. It's not a new problem, but as NPR's Allison Aubrey reports, what is new is the momentum for change. When you walk into a grocery store this time of year... Are there certain displays that are hard to miss? Of course, all the Halloween candy. That's Anna Herforth of the T.H. Chan School of Public Health. 
Her research with Gallup provides a new snapshot of Americans' eating habits. It shows just how many or how few consume the variety of different recommended food groups. What we find is it's about 28% of Americans are eating any amount of all of the food groups recommended in the U.S. dietary guidelines. Even fewer eat the recommended amounts of things like fruits, vegetables, and whole grains. For decades now, as diet-related diseases, including obesity and diabetes, have increased, Americans have been told to eat better. The problem is, there's a big mismatch between the foods we're told we should eat and the foods that are most abundant and affordable on store shelves. There's been a long tradition of you know, putting personal responsibility on individuals to choose a healthy diet. And that's really difficult when you're sort of fighting against the food environment. It's not just Halloween candy. Researchers at the Access to Nutrition Initiative analyzed about 11,000 products from leading food companies, including Kellogg, General Mills, Unilever, Kraft Heinz, and Nestle. They found about 70% failed to meet a healthy threshold. The group's executive director, Greg Garrett, says many companies have pledged to make changes, but so far he sees little progress. This is disappointing. This is a disappointing finding after four years of uh, gauging with these food companies that the overall product portfolios haven't changed. They're, they're not healthier than they were. Many of the companies included in the new report push back. Kraft Heinz, for instance, points to a 40% reduction in sugar and its Capri Sun drinks, which are popular with kids. But critics say incremental changes are not enough, not at a time when diet-related diseases are a top cause of death. So to step up the pressure, Greg Garrett and his team want to leverage investors' power to nudge companies to sell healthier foods. We've been working to build a coalition of investors. These are institutional investors who believe strongly that we need to see change at the highest level. The pandemic shined a spotlight on the impact of diet-related disease. People with diabetes and heart disease were more likely to be hospitalized or die from COVID. Now, with increased awareness, Garrett says more investors are interested in putting their money into companies that strive to do better. We're going to work with our 80 or so investor signatories over the coming years, we hope, to see the, uh, the chief executives of these companies in the boardrooms um, enact change. It is easier said than done, but one investor, Lauren Compare, managing director with an impact investing firm called Boston Common Asset Management, says investors can push for a range of strategies. For instance, linking executives' compensation to the launch and sales of healthy products, or nudging companies to prioritize marketing of healthy options. We have to look at kind of all those pressure points. And we want to see sort of momentum of, of companies leaning in to healthier products. She points to one recent example with Unilever, a UK-based company that owns several ice cream brands, including Ben & Jerry's. A coalition of shareholder activists filed a resolution urging more transparency around the foods Unilever sells. Instead of the company using its own definitions of healthy, Unilever has now agreed to publish independent assessments. The company also announced new targets earlier this year to increase the proportion of healthier foods it sells. Alison Aubrey, NPR News.
Support for NPR health coverage comes from Procter & Gamble, maker of ZQuil Pure Z's gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. And from BetterHelp, connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and relationships. 25,000 therapists are available through BetterHelp using a computer or smartphone. BetterHelp.com slash public. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, for some, this month is Sober October, meaning people abstain from alcohol, perhaps contributing to an expansion in the market for non-alcoholic beverages. It's 8.50. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from the Doris Duke Charitable Foundation, which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future. And from the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. U.S. Senate contest in Pennsylvania is among the closest and most closely watched in the country this year, with two very high-profile contenders. The two men finally debate on Tuesday. Guys like John Fetterman take everything to the extreme. Send Dr. Oz back to New Jersey. Excitement leading up to their first and only showdown. That story this afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. Today at 4 on WBUR. Rain this morning and maybe thunderstorms with temperatures rising to the low 60s. Cloudy this afternoon, then showers will probably return toward evening. It'll fall only slightly to the upper 50s. Tomorrow, a good chance of more showers, otherwise overcast and in the mid-60s. Cloudy with a chance for showers and low to mid-60s on Wednesday. It's 56 degrees in Boston at 8.51. You've heard of dry January, but what about sober October? Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Palo Alto Networks. Palo Alto Networks delivers what's next in cybersecurity innovation to protect today's digital way of life. Learn more at paloaltonetworks.com. And by Amazon Business, your partner for smart business buying. Learn more at amazonbusiness.com. From Marketplace in Austin, Texas, I'm Andy Learn for David Brancaccio. First, the IRS has announced that you will soon be allowed to contribute more to your retirement account. It says in 2023, you can contribute up to $22,500, that's $2,000 more than the current limit, to your 401k, your 403b, etc. Marketplace's Kristen Schwab has more. The nearly 10% jump in the federal contribution limit is mostly due to inflation. That's how these limits are indexed. And it's one of the largest increases in decades. The IRS is also raising the limit on catch-up contributions. That's the amount plan participants who are ages 50 and older can save on top of the federal contribution limit. The catch-up contribution limit will jump more than 15%. But experts say the higher caps will not significantly change the savings picture for workers. Most people don't save anywhere near the current federal limit. Vanguard estimates that less than 15 percent of participants max out their contributions in 2021. It means raising the limits won't benefit many people. I'm Kristen Schwab for Marketplace. The U.S. government is reportedly considering ways to prevent China from accessing U.S.-made technology around quantum computing and artificial intelligence. This was first reported by Bloomberg last week. Marketplace's Sabri Benishore has been looking into this for us. 
The administration is broadly concerned about cutting-edge technologies that can have military uses. In a regulatory filing, it said China was using supercomputing and artificial intelligence to improve its nuclear weapons and advanced semiconductors to enable human rights violations. There is not a lot of detail on what measures exactly the U.S. is considering to curb China's access to U.S. quantum computing and artificial intelligence technology, but it recently announced policies to restrict that country's access to U.S. chips and semiconductors. That included requiring licenses to export certain materials, as well as preventing any U.S. citizen or green card holder anywhere from helping China develop advanced chip technology. There are risks to this approach. U.S. companies would lose sales, foreign competitors could pick up the slack, and China can hire non-U.S. talent. In New York, I'm Sabri Beneshore for Marketplace. Let's do the numbers. The Hang Seng Index in Hong Kong fell more than 6% today after the Communist Party of China's 20th National Congress wrapped up this weekend. U.S.-listed Chinese tech stocks have also struggled this morning. Alibaba is down sharply in pre-market trading. Dow and S&P futures are down, uh, are both up half a percent this morning, with the Dow future up 150 points. NASDAQ futures are up a tenth of a percent. The 10-year Treasury yield is down at 4.204 percent. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Progressive. Progressive Commercial Insurance offers personalized rates and customizable coverages for your business vehicles. More at ProgressiveCommercial.com. And by Charles Schwab. Schwab understands that wealth management is personal. That's why Schwab offers flexible, personalized financial planning crafted for their investors' individual goals. Learn more at Schwab.com. For some people, this month is sober October, meaning not a drop of alcohol, nothing. For people who are trying to avoid drinking but like the taste, non-alcoholic beverages might be a good option. The market for these drinks, which sets to emulate their boozy counterparts as closely as possible, has expanded rapidly in recent years, both due to what some call a rise in quality and also wider health concerns. To get a better sense of this growth, we hear now from Megan Klein, founder of Little Saints, a company founded a year ago that's in business in the business of making and selling non-alcoholic mocktails. She recently spoke with my colleague David Brancaccio. Megan, what is the problem with alcohol these days? I'm seeing some actually pretty decent no-alcohol IPA ales. You got into mocktails. What is driving this? What's driving it is the anxiety economy. The anxiety economy was already there pre-pandemic. We were all using our meditation apps. We were using squeeze balls and we were trying different ways to address our anxiety, but it wasn't until the pandemic that our drinking habits really became clear. I personally did dry January for the first time in 2021 and then really started thinking about, you know, what was out there that we could replace alcohol with because a lot of us saw that it was not sustainable. Yeah, so in a sense, a reaction to the high pandemic times when people may have been drinking too much and, and people perhaps rethinking it. I also note maybe demographics is part of this. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. So I am the youngest of Gen X, but about 42% of millennials drink on a regular basis and only 21% of Gen Z drinks on a regular basis. And that is the statistic. And then anecdotally, you probably know some Gen Z too. They think drinking is like gross because they're much more health conscious. So Megan, entrepreneur that you are, you saw the problem that you thought needed to be solved, but how'd you go about doing this? I mean, you don't want these mocktails to taste lousy. Absolutely. So after I did dry January, what I saw was that there was really no beyond meat of the non-alcoholic beverage market. I wanted something that tastes, smelled and felt like a cocktail. And I didn't find that. And so what we created was a mocktail that has 
smell compound. So it's going to give you the same experience as when you're smelling your wine or your cocktail. And then it has adaptogens that take us directly into our parasympathetic nervous system and make us feel relaxed in the same way that a cocktail does. That's um, specifically we're using a reishi mushroom and CBD blend to give that mood lifter. And what about distribution for you? What was your thought? Direct to consumers or through other kinds of partners? You know, Kellogg marketer that I am, I actually spent the first summer um, getting to know my customer in the Midwest. I have this little mint green vending trailer that I took all around the Midwest and I got feedback on what um, people other than myself really wanted in a non-alcoholic drink. And that's how I created the flavors. So wait, it was a it was like a food truck van, but for mocktails, what did it look like? It was a used corn vending trailer. Um, it's this really cute little um, rounded trailer with a side hatch. And I towed her behind my mint green Little Saints Jeep. I went all in and I towed it around the Midwest. A corn van that doesn't get more Midwest corn, than that. <laughs> exactly. For the record, she got a glam up. She's mint green and um, peach and she looks really cute. You would not know that she was a corn vending trailer unless I told you. <laughs> All right. Megan Klein, founder of Little Saints, the company that makes and sells non-alcoholic mocktails. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, David. You know, I've been getting into the non-alcoholic beer scene, and I have to admit, some of them are pretty good. In Austin, I'm Andy Euler with the Marketplace Morning Report. From APM, American Public Media. This is 90.9 WBUR. In your forecast, showers, maybe thunderstorms in low 60s today. More showers tonight in the upper 50s. Cloudy and mid to upper 60s tomorrow with a slight chance of rain. Cloudy and mid 60s on Wednesday with a good chance of more showers. It's 56 degrees in Boston and we're coming up on 9 o'clock. The BBC is next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Vertex, working for people living with sickle cell disease, cystic fibrosis, kidney disease, and more. Careers in Boston, Cambridge, and Providence at vrtx.com. And an unlikely story bookstore and cafe with Pulitzer Prize winner Stacy Schiff and the revolutionary Samuel Adams, November 3rd, on unlikelystory.com. More than a million Black Americans fought for the United States in World War II, a call to arms that posed a painful question. Should I sacrifice my life to live half American? Is the America I know worth defending? I'm Kimberly Atkins-Store, World War II from a Black perspective. That's on point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. I'm Weekend Edition host Sharon Brody, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. You can listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.